0: in Freedom, I want to welcome you, and I want to welcome all of our guests that are joining us live this morning as we are worshiping God. Even though we can't gather together, we still have an opportunity to to be together, but we're doing so online. And I'm grateful for you uh, joining us. And here's what I'd love for you to do. Inside the comments, if you're you're on Facebook Live, or uh, if you're on our our website, just put where you're viewing us from. We'd love to be able to connect with you, love to be able to to find out where everybody's watching in and joining in from. And so today we're going to be concluding our, our series on this life of Gideon called Fearless. And one of the things we've been talking about throughout this series is the fact that God doesn't call us because we're fearless, rather he empowers us to fear less. And in this season, there's a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty and a lot of anxiety. And God in his sovereignty brought us together to study the life of Gideon so that we could understand and grasp how you and I can live fearless. And today we're going to be concluding that series, and we're going to be looking at the end of Gideon's life. We're going to be taking a look in Judges 8 and 9 as we dive into Gideon's life. And so far, we've seen that Gideon... When we first met him, man, this guy was full of fear and doubt. He was scared to death. He's hiding from the Midianites, and they're getting ready to raid the Israelites. And Gideon's hiding, and he's afraid. But God promises Gideon, and God tells Gideon, Gideon, I'm going to make you into a mighty man of valor. I'm going to transform you. I'm going to change you. And then God assures Gideon of his promises. And he makes Gideon aware of his presence. He says, I will be with you. Then last week as we took a look at Gideon's life, what we discovered is that Gideon takes a huge step of faith. Gideon steps out in faith and he believes God. He trusts God. And God delivers Gideon a mighty victory, an incredible victory, where Gideon defeats the army of Midianites that had 135,000 soldiers and troops. uh, Gideon defeats them through God's help with 300 men. 300 men. I mean, it's a huge victory. Not one single casualty on the Israelite side. God delivers Israelite. God comes through. His promises and his presence were true. And Gideon has this incredible courage that even in the midst of his fear, he chooses to have faith and trust God. And we saw last week that Gideon, in the midst of this battle, in the midst of this war, he was completely and totally dependent upon God. He placed his trust and his faith in God to do what only God could do. Now, as we enter into, as we ended up at the end of of chapter 7, we see that Gideon has been faithful. Gideon has fulfilled his calling. Gideon has been transformed by the power of God. And, God has, and Gideon has lived his life giving God the glory. He stops and he pauses and he worships God. In fact, Gideon is listed in Hebrews 11 as one of the men that, that, that is an example of faith. And at the end of chapter 7, there's this huge victory, this huge celebration Gideon's pulled off the greatest, one of the greatest military defeats in history. With 300 men, he defeats 135,000. All, all of this happens because, God is, because Gideon is trusting God, because Gideon is walking with God, because Gideon has placed his faith in God. And Gideon in this moment is this massive celebration. I can just picture it. I can just imagine the people of Israel throwing this huge party, this huge celebration. I can picture them having this massive ticker tape parade, popping champagne bottles, just carrying Gideon around on their shoulders. I mean, talking about a massive celebration. This huge celebration. But Judges 8 and 9, they reveal the tragic end of Gideon's life. Judges 8 and And 9, show show what happens when Gideon begins to allow his success to go to his head. These two chapters in Judges begin to to show how Gideon begins to drift away from the Lord. And it's a tragic end, and and as I was reading this this week, the the end of Gideon's life bothers me. And it bothers me for this reason, that you and I can live a good life. We can have a life that is full of faith, walking with God, and yet at the end of our lives not finish well. Because the reality is how we finish is just as important as how we run run the race. We 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 can live our lives and we can walk in faith and we can undo that faith with a couple of foolish decisions. And that is exactly what happens in Gideon's life. Now, Gideon isn't evil per se. He's not a bad guy. He's not, he's not an evil person. He simply begins to read his own press clippings. Gideon simply allows this idea that he is bigger than he thinks he is. He begins to move from dependence upon God to independence of God. And we see this happen right before our eyes. He becomes more interested in gaining glory for himself than giving glory to God. And that is exactly what happens in the life of Gideon. He begins to think that God's used him in the past. And because God used him to to, to bring about this incredible victory that he must be a big deal. And ultimately, it is Gideon's pride it's ultimately his pride that causes him to move out of a posture of weakness and surrender and move into a posture of, of arrogance and overconfidence. And that's exactly what happens in his life. And, it, and as we pick up in, in, uh, in Judges chapter 8, at the beginning of this chapter, what we discover is that Gideon is in conflict with two groups of Israelites. He's he's fussing and arguing and bickering with two groups of of Israelites. Listen to what happens. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you have done to us? Not to call us when you went to fight against Midian. Now let's stop right there. You see, what is happening is the the tribe of Ephraim was a mighty tribe. They were a wealthy tribe. They were a large, strong tribe. And apparently in this passage, according to what we just read, they, they... had their pride hurt. They were somewhat upset that Gideon didn't invite them into the war. Didn't invite them into the battle. And it says, and they accused him fiercely. Listen to what Gideon says. And then Gideon said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of, of Abiezer? God has given into your hands, the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, what have I been able to do in comparison with you? And then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So listen, they're upset, they're mad, they're, they're ticked off at Gideon for not inviting them into the battle. They wanted the glory and I think more than anything they wanted the the spoils of the of the victory. They wanted the the to be able to take from the Midianites treasure and 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 they're upset with Gideon because he didn't invite them in. So what does Gideon do? He begins to woo them. He begins to flatter them. And as he flatters them their their anger subsides. He says, "Listen, You are so much greater than I am. You are so much more powerful than I am. What have I done that is better in comparison to you? Listen to what happens next in verse 4. And Gideon came to the Jordan, and he crossed over the Jordan. He and the 300 men who were with him, they were exhausted yet pursuing. And so what is happening? The battle isn't quite done. They've defeated the majority of the Midianites, but the two kings of Midian have escaped. And so Gideon and his 300 men are pursuing these two kings of of Midian. And it says in verse 5, So he said to the men of Sukkoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing after Zebah and Zalmunah, the kings of Midian. And listen to this. The officials of Sukkoth said... Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? In other words, what they're saying is they are, they're skeptical of Gideon. They realize that Gideon has not won this war, and they're actually afraid that if he doesn't defeat these two kings, these two kings will come and attack them for giving bread to Gideon. So they're doubting him. They're, 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 they, they refuse to give him bread. And so Gideon says to them, Well then... When the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. In verse 8, from there he went up to Peniel. And he spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Peniel answered him as the men of Sukoth had answered. And he said to the men of Peniel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. So here's what's happening. Gideon's in pursuit of these two kings. And the men of Sukkoth and the men of Peniel, they refuse to help him. He's asking for bread. He's wanting to give his troops some, something to eat, to give them strength to complete the battle. And they refuse to let him have anything. And he says, well, when I come back, I'm going, to, I'm going to beat you with briars, and I'm going to tear down the tower in your town. Well, he does come back. in Verse 13, then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle. And he captured, the, he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. So Gideon captures this young guy, and he says, Listen, you're going to give me the name of the elders, the men who refused to give me bread. And he does. He writes them down. And then in verse 15, And Gideon came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zalmunna, about whom you taunted me, saying, are the hands of Zeba and Zelmuna already in your hand? That we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? Listen is what happens. He took the elders from the city, and he took thorns out of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. So what, what Gideon does is he takes the briars, and he beats the elders of Sukkoth with the briars. He tortures them. And then verse 17, and he broke down the tower of Peniel and killed the men of the city. Now, what is happening in in these verses and what do we need to notice? First of all, I want you to notice how differently Gideon responds to these two groups. To the Ephraimites, what does he do? He flatters them, he woos them. But to the men of Sukkoth, no, he, doesn't. he responds harshly. To the men of Peniel, he responds incredibly harshly. He responds with harshness, with anger. In fact, he, it leads to torture and to murder, and he kills the men. He completely obliterates the men of Peniel. Why would he do that? And, and why would his response be so inconsistent? See, I think the reason... Gideon's response was so inconsistent with these two groups of, of Israelites. The, the men and women from Ephraim and the men of Sukkoth and Peniel was this. That Gideon was no longer seeking what God wanted, but he was looking out for what he wanted. He wanted revenge because they didn't help him. He wanted to get even because they didn't help him. But Gideon responds to the tribe of Ephraim with flattery. Why? Because they were a strong tribe. They had a lot of money. Gideon needed them. He needed them on his side. So he woos them. He flatters them in order to get them back on his side. But for the men of Sukkoth and Peniel, they're weaker than him. Gideon didn't need them. So what does he do? He tortures and kills them and wipes them out. See, the point is this, is that Gideon, throughout this entire chapter in chapter 8, not once does Gideon consult God. Not once does Gideon pray. Not once does Gideon seek God's face. Not once does he ask God what God would have him to do. He simply did what he felt like doing. That's what Gideon does based on what he had the power to do. I want you to notice a few words that he says here. Notice what he says. He says, "What have I done in comparison to you? I will tear your flesh. I will tear down your tower." What is it all about? It's all about me, me, me. Gideon's turned everything about himself. He's concerned about his feelings. He's concerned about his decisions. All he's saying is, "I will do this. I will do." This. Not once does Gideon say, "If the Lord wills, I will do these things." He just simply says. I will do this and I will do that. Gideon's made it all about himself. And we need to be very careful here that our years of experience and our successes and our victories do not tempt us to become overconfident and arrogant like Gideon was. Why? Because such arrogant pride will cause us eventually to take our eyes off of Jesus. They will eventually cause us to walk away from the faith that we love. And they will cause us to not finish our race well. Rather, what we're to do, we're to walk humbly before God. We're to walk intimately with God. We're to walk in dependence upon God. We need to confess to God daily our need for Him. We're to confess to Him And surrender to him on a daily basis. Otherwise, pride will seek him. Because the reality is, without Christ, you and I can't do anything. And yet, in chapter 8, Gideon is walking without surrender. He's walking without dependence. He's walking in his own strength and his own might. Listen to what happens next in verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us. In other words, be our king, you and your sons and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. What are they saying? They're saying, listen, Gideon, we want you to establish a dynasty. We want you to establish a monarchy. We want you to be our king. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So what's happening here? First and foremost, I want you to notice what the people of Israel said to Gideon. They said, we want you to be our king. Why? Because you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Now, if you're familiar with the story, and if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, the whole reason that God shrunk Gideon's army, the whole reason he went from 32,000 troops to 300 troops, was so that no man in that army, including including Gideon, could take credit for the victory. That no one could say, we are the ones that delivered Israel from the hand of the Midianites. That's the whole reason God shrunk his army. And yet here you have the nation of Israel, the people of Israel saying, listen, Gideon, we want you to be our king because you have delivered us from the Midianites. They are stealing God's glory and giving it to Gideon. That's exactly what they're doing because the whole purpose of shrinking the army was so that God would get all the glory. Notice in this passage, there is not one mention of God. Not one time do they say, God delivered us. They say, Gideon, you delivered us. Now, Gideon's response seems pretty good. Gideon responds and says, Listen, you do not need a king. I won't be your king, my kids won't be your king. God will rule over you. Why did he say that? Because he knew that God had told the Israelites that, listen, you're going to be a set-apart nation. You're going to be my people. You are not going to have a king rule over you like the other nations. Rather, I am going to be your king. I am going to be your ruler. I am going to be uh, your, your in charge of you. And so, God, so Gideon tells us, he says, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. He acknowledges that the only one to rule over the nation of Israel is God. Not him, not anyone else, not his children, none other than God. But here's the reality. This this kind of statement was a typical statement in Middle Eastern times that was really a a uh, pseudo-humble statement. In other words, Gideon was saying, listen, I, 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 I appreciate your flattery, and and I really don't want to be your king, but I do want to be your king. What he ends up saying, what he's actually saying is, is, is he's acting like he doesn't want something that he really wants. And so, in this pseudo-humble manner, Gideon is accepting their offer to be king. See, his words are right, his words are good. So I suppose, I guess we can give him a little bit of credit there. We can say, all right, Gideon, you you said the right thing, but don't take what he says at face value. Because what happens in the next few verses show that Gideon was saying one thing, I don't want to be your king. And he begins to take steps to do the exact opposite thing by setting himself up to be their king. Look how Gideon begins to act like he's their king. First and foremost, he asks for and receives taxes. Look Look at verse 24. Then Gideon said to them, Let me make my request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from your spoil. And they answered him and said, We will willingly give them. And they spread out a cloak, and every man threw in his earrings of the spoil. So what's Gideon doing? He's doing what kings do. Kings ask for taxes. Kings take from the people. And that's exactly what he does. He says, listen, give me the earrings that you got from the Midianite army. Give me their spoil. And he says, I want, I'm going to take those things. And so he does. He, they, he asks for them and he receives taxes from the people. That's exactly what kings do. But not only that, Gideon has a harem just like a king. Look at verse 30. And it says, now Gideon had 70 sons of his own offspring. For Gideon had many wives. Only kings had that many wives. Only kings had enough wives to have 70 children. But not only that, listen to this, what happens in 30, verse 31. Gideon names his son Abimelech. Now, I know you're going, well, what does that have to do with being a king? Listen. Listen to what it says. And his concubine, so Gideon also had, he had many wives, but he also had at least one concubine, if not more. That's what kings do. And and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. Now, you may be going, well, what does that have to do with being a king? We have to understand what the what Abimelech means. That name that Gideon gave his son means Abimelech literally means my father is king. So, so Gideon named his son, My father is king. Sounds like, sounds like to me that Gideon views himself as a king. But then, worst of all, back in in verse 27, Gideon makes an ephod. Look what happens. And Gideon made an ephod. And he made it out of all the gold that he had collected from the people. And he put it in his city in Oprah. And all Israel hoard after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Listen. The ephod, it was a, it was a vest that the, that the high priest would wear. And according to God's law, the high priest was to wear it Only in the temple, and only when he was mediating between God and the people. Only when he was intercessing on behalf of the people to God was the the high priest to wear the ephod. And so now Gideon has created his own ephod. Now, I admit, Gideon may not be trying to deny God, He may not be trying to to deny God, but he's put himself in the place of God. He's taking on the privileges privileges that belong only to God, and the result is that he begins to draw the people away from God. It's a sad case that it happens, but what happened to Gideon? What caused such a spiritual decline? I believe we can be summed up with one word, pride. Pride is what what crept into Gideon's life and caused such a great fall and great decline. I mean, think about it. Before the battle, before he went to battle, Gideon was afraid. He He was scared, and he was walking humbly before God. He was completely dependent upon God, and his dependence drove him to pray instinctively. He had no other choice. He had to pray. He had to seek God. There was no way that he could overcome the Midianites by himself. So before the battle, Gideon is walking humbly before God. He's seeking after God. He's praying to God. But then after the battle, after the victory is won, Gideon begins to walk in pride. Gideon begins to have a taste for glory. And as a result of this taste for glory, what he begins, to, he begins seeking the Lord. He begins talking to God. He, begin, he, he stops praying for, to God. Gideon started out as a servant he started out as a humble servant just saying yes to whatever God told him to do but after the battle Gideon becomes a prideful celebrity and that pride goes to his head and as a result he stops seeking after God he stops looking and praying and asking what God would what, what, what God would have him to do, see the sad part of this story is that Gideon squandered an incredible opportunity. He squandered an opportunity to call the nation of Israel back to the Lord, to call the nation of Israel to repentance, to call them to, to come seek the Lord once again. He had the perfect opportunity. God had just delivered Israel from the hand of the Midianites. 300 men had performed, a, God had performed a miracle through those men. And yet Gideon not once does he rally the nation and say, listen, let's seek God. It is God who delivered us. No, what happens is his pride and his arrogance cause him to receive all the glory that was due to God. Instead, Gideon, what he does is he makes it all about himself. He makes every bit of it about himself and it becomes a stumbling block to the people. And it causes the nation of Israel to walk away from their faith in God. Listen to what happens at the end of Gideon's life. In verse 33, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal berith their God. completely disregarded God. And listen to what happens. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord. Wow. They didn't remember the Lord. Listen, we have to be very careful. Otherwise, you and I can fall into the same trap as Gideon. If we make everything about ourselves if we become self-centered, if we become prideful, we can begin to rob God of His glory. We begin to take the glory that, is, that God deserves and take it upon ourselves. And that is exactly what Gideon did. And the reality is, if you and I make everything about us, the same thing can happen in our lives that happened in Gideon's life. And as we're going to see in chapter 9, that this decision, his decision... To allow pride to take over, wrecked the nation of Israel. It ruined his reputation, and ultimately destroyed his family. Let's fast forward to Judges nine. I don't have time to read it today, but I encourage you to read it. It uh, it's far more entertaining than anything you've been watching on Netflix the last couple of weeks while we've been sheltering in place. It's a it's a fascinating story of what happens in in Judges chapter nine, and so I. Strongly encourage you to, to read it. But remember Abimelech, Gideon's son, whose name was my dad is king, my father is king. He decides he wants to be king like his father. And so what he goes and does, he goes and hires a bunch of worthless men. And he, he leads those men to his father's house. Now Gideon, it was, we were told, had 70 children. And Abimelech goes with these worthless men... And he goes and he kills all of Gideon's other sons. He kills all all of them except for one. Thankfully one, this man named Jotham, he escaped. He escaped. The youngest son escaped by hiding uh, from these worthless men. But then uh, Abimelech goes to the people of Israel, the leaders of Israel, and says, listen, I want to be your king. My father has no more sons left. Yeah, they don't have any sons left because you killed them all. But that's not what the people of Israel say. And what they do, they actually put him and set him up as king. They declare him as king in Shechem. This is a terrible uh, scandal that's going on. Why? Because first and foremost, as we've already talked about, Israel was never meant to have a king. God was to be their king. Secondly, the person they put in charge was, was a brother murdering scoundrel. That's who they choose to be their king. And the third thing, this all took place in Shechem, which to the Jews was a holy site. It was the birthplace of their nation. And the leaders of Israel place Abimelech over them as king. Now, thankfully, Jotham comes around and he calls out the leaders of Israel and he begins to criticize them. And what he does is he he criticizes them for anointing this worthless, self-interested, opportunistic politician to lead them. And he says, this is going to come back on you. You're going to pay the price for making Abimelech king. Now, as you can imagine, it's exactly what happens. I mean, Abimelech makes a terrible, terrible king. And the leaders that anointed him turn on him. And they revolt against him. And this story is a horrific account of scandal and sabotage and mass murder. All at the hands of Abimelech. Now, the story does have somewhat of a humorous ending, if you can call it that. See, Abimelech is getting ready. He's already burnt and killed over a thousand people when they revolted against him and he's getting ready to do so to another town and all the townspeople were trapped in the tower which was to be a safe haven and and he's getting ready to light the tower on fire and burn him and then this woman at the top of the tower throws a kitchen appliance a millstone waxing inside upside the head knocks it knock, nearly kills him but he's barely alive And he looks up at one of his his servants and he says, please kill me so that I I do not die in disgrace at the hands of a kitchen appliance. And Abimelech's life comes to a tragic end after so many lost lives, after so much hurt and pain that he's caused in Israel. And the catalyst for all this was Gideon's pride. It was Gideon's pride. I just have a feeling that if it had Gideon walked with God and led his kids to walk with God, the story would have ended vastly different. That's not what he does. After his victory, he sets himself up as king. After his victory, he has... Many wives and 70 children. And not one time does it talk about him leading his children into a relationship with the Lord. Not one time does it talk about him leading his children to pray to the Lord. Not one time does it talk about Gideon mentioning the Lord at all. Which just reminds me that you and I are most, most vulnerable after our greatest victories. We're most vulnerable. And we're most prone to fall into into temptation after we've experienced God's grace and His power. That's why the Apostle Paul said this in in 1 Corinthians 10. He said, Therefore, let anyone thinks that he he stands, take heed lest he fall. So scripture throughout Scripture, it it says that pride comes before the fall why does this happen to us i don't really know exactly why it happens i think there's a few things we can say that would cause us to happen i think perhaps whenever we have a victory we we tend to let our guard down a little bit we tend to 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 take our eyes off of jesus a little bit perhaps we begin to to feel like we can we can handle things in our own strength by ourselves. we we begin after these spiritual victories we begin to to drift toward independence from God as opposed to dependence upon Him. Maybe it's because we begin to to relax in our spiritual disciplines. Whatever the case is, it is often easier for us to seek God and to walk with God when life is hard. And it's often harder for us to walk with God when life is good. Why? Because when life's good, our pride kicks in. But when life's hard, we have no other choice. I don't know in this season that we're in, life is hard. Life is difficult. It is challenging. We are sheltered at home, and, and we are social people. We're designed and created for this room to be full, not to be empty. And many of us are struggling with that, and, 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 and we're having a corona depression, and it's, just, it's tough. But I also believe that many of you right now in this season are seeking after God like you haven't sought after Him in a long time. Why? Because seeking after God when it's hard is often the easiest. But here's the challenge or the the encouragement to you. Because this too shall pass. Things will get back to where they were. Things will... Pick up. Life will get back to normal. Jobs will be started once again. The economy will get better. And when it does, let's take heed from Gideon's life. And let's not allow our pride and our arrogance and our overconfidence to drive us away from the Lord, but let's continue to remain dependent and seeking and walking with God in faith. See, in contrast to Gideon, there was a man named, named Paul. Now, Paul was an apostle, and, and he was an apostle, and Paul finished his life well. He finished his race well. From the moment Paul received God's grace, and he met God, and you got to understand, Paul was a murderer before he met God. Before he met Jesus, he was, he was killing other Christians. He was trying to end Christianity. And yet when when Paul meets God face to face and he sees Jesus for the very first time, who Jesus really is, that Jesus is his Lord, his Savior, his Messiah. From that moment on, Paul walked in faith. And Paul set his heart and his desire to become more and more like Jesus each and every day. Now Romans 7, Paul will tell you he wasn't perfect that he would often do the things he didn't want to do and often not do the things he wanted to do. But yet, at the same time, at the end of Paul's life, he's writing a letter to his protege, a man named Timothy. And he says this in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I've kept the faith. Listen, that should be each and every one of our prayer. That at the end of our lives, that we'll be able to say, listen, God, I have kept the faith. haven't been perfect because none of us are going to be perfect. But I've done what I can to keep my faith. I've run my race well. So how do we do that? I think there's a few principles, a few thoughts to close out our message. First and foremost, keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews, 11, or Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Because we all want to finish this race well. And then he says this, Look to Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Listen, if you and I want to run our race well, if we want to finish our race, if we want to keep our faith, we have to fix our eyes on Jesus. We can't allow other things to distract us. We can't allow other things to get in our way. We have to fix our eyes on Jesus. Secondly, I think in order for us to run our race well, in order for us to finish our race well. We have to continue to keep growing spiritually. Listen, don't let your guard down spiritually. I know many of you have probably been following God for a very long time, and it can seem uh, like, man, I've done enough. I've, I've, I've served enough. I've given enough. I've, I've read enough Scripture. I've prayed enough. But the reality is, listen, we cannot let our guard down. And we have to continue to pursue spiritual disciplines. We have to continue to grow spiritually. How do we do that? Through prayer, through reading God's Word, through worship, through understanding and knowledgeing and gaining an insight into who God is by fully surrendering our lives to Him, by laying down our lives daily and following Jesus. So keep growing spiritually. But the third thing I think we need to do is we need to invest in others. What led to Gideon's pride was he took his eyes off of others and his eyes off of God and made it all about him. But when you and I intentionally make it about others and we invest in other people, it's very difficult to make it about us when we're investing in someone else. That's what Paul constantly did. He had Timothy, he had Barnabas, he had other men that he poured his life into. I think it's one of the reasons Jesus said at the end of his life on earth, he said, listen, I want you to go and make disciples. How do we make disciples? We make disciples by investing our lives in other people, by serving other people, by giving ourselves away, by dying to ourselves. I know in this season it's incredibly hard to serve someone else. But the reality is we can always send a text to our neighbor. We can always reach out to someone we know that is vulnerable. We can always... Make it about someone else. Because the truth is, during this season, if we make it all about me, I'm going to have a hard time getting through this isolation. I'm going to have a hard time getting through this season. Why? Because when it's all about me, my focus is taken off of God and off of others. So how are you and I going to finish our race? Are we going to be like Paul and we're going to fight the good fight? We're going to finish our race. We're going to keep the faith. Some of us are going to finish our race running with joy. Others of us, man, we're just going to finish it by walking across the finish line. Others of us, man, maybe you finish just by simply crawling across the finish line or limping across the finish line. But the reality is you and I can choose how we're going to finish our race by fixing our eyes on Jesus, continuing to grow spiritually, And investing in other people. Listen, Gideon, he failed at the end of his race. But here's what I want to go back to. I want to go back to this thought at the very beginning of this message. And I mentioned that Gideon was included in Hebrews 11 as a man who walked by faith. And here's what I want to close with that. I want to close with that because that is encouraging. Yeah, we've got, the, we've, we've got a, a front row seat to Gideon's failure today. And yet Gideon was written about in God's word as a man of faith. Which that gives a lot of hope to me. Because the reality is I fail i make mistakes i don't always walk by faith i don't always pray like i should i don't always read scripture like i should i don't always invest in others like i should i don't always keep my eyes fixed on jesus the way that i should but i have hope that god in his grace and god in his mercy looked at gideon even in the even with all of his mistakes and even all the consequences that were the result of his mistakes through his son Abimelech, God looked at him and said, You, Gideon, are going to be recorded for all time as a man who walked by faith. And so regardless of what you've done in the past, if you're still here on this earth, you have an opportunity to finish your race well. You have an opportunity right now to say, God, I'm going to reset this whole thing. I'm going to fix my eyes on Jesus. I'm going to make spiritual disciplines a priority in my life. I'm going to take the focus off of me and put it on others. I'm going to love you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. Let Gideon's life be a warning to us, but also an encouragement to us that God is gracious, that God is forgiving. That God loves us and wants what is best for us. And he wants to make each and every one of us into a mighty man of valor. That walks in faith. Not because we're fearless. But because God has empowered us to fear less. Let's pray. Father God, I, I don't know why you included Gideon in Hebrews 11. Because quite honestly, I think if I were you, I probably wouldn't have. But thankfully, I'm not you. Because God, you are full of grace and full of mercy. You are full of love for us. And though Gideon failed, though he, he ended his life really quite miserably, God, you and your mercy and your grace still loved him. You still saw Who you had designed him to be. And that is a mighty man of valor. A man that walked in faith. That trusted you. That depended upon you. And so Father I know that many here. That are listening. uh, Online today. Many here are walking faithfully with you. And Lord I pray that you continue to give them strength. To put you first. To walk in dependence. Upon you. But I know others. You're walking in independence. You're doing things in your own strength. Your life resembles the second part of Gideon's story, not the first. And for you this morning, I pray that you would just surrender and repent and just cry out to God and say, God, I have forsaken You. I've been walking in my own strength, my own power, my own might. And I want to fix my eyes on Jesus. I want to surrender my life completely to You, Lord. I want to take the focus off of me and put it on others. And Father, I pray that you'd give people that are listening the strength to do so. The strength today to no longer make it about them, but to make it about you. To stop robbing you of your glory and to give you all the glory that you deserve. Father, I pray that you'd help us above all things to surrender. Because when we surrender, We walk in that weakness that becomes our strength because we're trusting in you. Father, that is our prayer. Lord, help us to surrender. In Jesus' name, amen.